In this episode, we're going to reveal the worst mistakes rent investors make when it comes to tax depreciation. What you must avoid at all costs when looking at an investment property and dispel some common myths. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to move it along and become homeowners. But most importantly, it is for you to become an educated home buyer. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mum. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 45 years experience to share with you and market loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure you get unbiased and real information you can rely on. Allow us to guide you on your home buying journey. We want you to become an educated home buyer so that you can stop looking for your first home and actually become a proud homeowner. We've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. And there you'll get access to our free mini course, How to Price a Property Like a Professional. You will also find the holy grail of home buying education, Your First Home Buyer Guide, the online course for people who want to become educated home buyers. We created this for you to help you get on the right path to home ownership for your first home and beyond. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, we've got the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field who takes the time to understand your personal situation. We've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording. Things change rapidly, so always check with the relevant government authority and your trusted advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today we're talking about what seems like a dry topic, tax depreciation, but it is not, especially with our guest expert. (laughs) Now, getting this stuff wrong could blow up your long-term plans, and that's why you need to stay listening to this absolutely gripping episode. And joining us is Mike Mortluck. He's the MD of MCG Quantity Surveyors. So thanks for joining us, Mike. Mike, welcome. What a wind-up. MD <laughs> makes you sound like medical doctor. That's what came in your well, bio. I was leaving so that you... open to interpretation. I'm the MD. It's good when you're sort of one of the owners of the business, you can make up whatever title you like. Pretty so much. I'm, I'll be head of strategy or chief innovation, whatever. I've I've seen titles like chief bun maker and, you know, just really weird titles. I love it when there's a, a single person business and they call themselves a CEO. <laughs> that does crack me up somewhat. <laughs> Um, but not you, yes. Mike. You're not a single person business, and you haven't called yourself a CEO. What you do? You want to tell us what a quantity surveyor is? Just before, as we kick off, because with, with our listeners are the yeah, so yeah, who, what? Yeah, what so does he do? Tell us what does a quantity quantity surveyor do? Well, we we are all construction cost estimating experts. So if you can think of any reason why it might be good to know how much something should be built for, then you will need a quantity surveyor. Interestingly, the governments don't tend to use them. They sort of say, like, we're going to build this $2 billion road and then it becomes $10 billion. $10 and I yes, always kind of think, because they threw a dart at a dartboard. Yeah, I, re- I always kind of think, gee, I could have probably helped out there a little bit. But anyway, the phone's not ringing from those guys. But we're, we're, construction cost estimating can be used in a multitude of different ways. It could be feasibility. Say a developer wants to build three townhouses and they just want a rough idea of what it's going to cost. And then 
with the with the level of documentation, then we can get then go to say tender reviews. Uh, we can we can do progress claims for banks. So if you want to do a development, a bank doesn't just give you the money and say good luck with it because then people tend to buy Ferraris and move to Costa Rica. Um, and my area of expertise is on the tax side of things. So I, I'm glad you we're talking about rent vesting for first home buyers because I think that's a great way to get into the market. And of course, tax depreciation is one of those things that first home buyers kind of think, well, that's just one of the things that investors can do. But if you are an investor because your goal is to get into that place of residence, then depreciation is something you need to understand. Absolutely. Now, uh, Mike, I want to I want to circle around a little bit because um, you and I had a discussion um, a week or two ago, and I think what we see a lot, and and particularly if somebody's talking to a financial advisor, or maybe they're having a chat around the water cooler, or they're having a, a discussion with somebody who considers themselves, you know, a bit experienced in the investment space. They talk about this depreciation. Okay, so they talk yeah. about depreciation. We're going to talk about what depreciation is in the, in a moment. But there, it, it, it essentially comes down to um, a sort of a way of decreasing your holding costs in some people's minds. It's much yeah. bigger and broader than that. But you told me that there is a question that you are most often asked and, and believe me, we're, we're going to roll into why this is a very dangerous thing shortly. But Tell us, what, what is that question, as an expert in your field, what is a question that you're most commonly asked and tell us what your answer is? Yeah. So, because my specialty is tax depreciation and our business does thousands and thousands of these things, of course, we see what people are buying and what sort of deductions that they're getting and being an expert in the field, they kind of think, all right, what's the best question to ask this guy with a cheap haircut? I'm going to ask him, what's the best type of investment property to purchase for the maximum deductions. Uh, and when I answer that question, I used to sort of straight straight bat it a little bit and say, oh, you know, look, there's, there's reasons why that's not the great question. But I suppose I got tired and sick of that. So I decided I'm going to take the shock and awe tactic. And what I normally will say, okay, the best investment for deductions is going to be uh, an apartment. I would say a one-bed apartment in a complex of 400 minimum. If we could get, say, 1,200, that would be great. Um, I want as many levels of basement as we can, hopefully six lifts worth a million dollars each, uh, <laughs> swimming pools, one or two, indoor, outdoor, we need all of that stuff. Um, some of these complexes I've seen have a, have a cinema or a library. I'd love to throw one of those in as well. Uh, and perhaps even one of those complexes that actually has the common area of your building, but then the common area of multiple buildings. You, you, you add all of those things together and the deductions are going to go through the roof. And then it kind of leads people to say, oh, but like from what I've read or from what I've heard um, possibly Veronica say about apartments, they don't necessarily sound like a good investment i go oh investment no it's a terrible investment it's <laughs> it's horrific you know the strata fees will keep you up nights right but the deductions oh the deductions oh. all they'll set you to rights <laughs> and that leads me and i love that because these two things are not uh, they're, they're mutually mm. exclusive what gives you the greatest num amount of deductions? I'm going to talk about why an investor might consider deductions to be um, helpful in in their their holding costs. But what gives you the greatest number of deductions doesn't or great 
highest level of deductions doesn't necessarily equate to a good investment property, which leads us to, you know, one of the frustrations Veronica and I have, and that is that often financial advisors are somewhat wrapped up or or influenced or incentivized by developers, and they're recommending properties that give them the greatest amount of deductions. Tax, accountants, it's their favorite thing to get you the most deductions that you can, but they're not necessarily good investment advisors. Yeah, and I suppose they might sort of set a goal for themselves is to save people X amount on tax. And yeah, you could save them tax by recommending an off-the-plan apartment, for example, but are you maximizing their wealth creation by doing that? It's a it's a short-term bonus for something that could cost you 10x or 20x the value of those deductions over time. And you, mm-hmm. you raise a, an interesting point about when depreciation is used as a marketing tool, it tends only ever to be in off-the-plan sales or, or brand-new property. And I often feel sad for, for gloss, right? Because people talk about the glossy brochures. Now, gloss is just a coating, you know, right? Like, I have no, I've no preference for gloss or matte, you know? But <laughs> gloss gets a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> it's these glossy brochures that have the, the beautiful stylized uh, designs, and then it will talk about the deductions. And why are they talking about deductions when people don't necessarily talk about it in established properties? It's not because there are no deductions available in established properties. It's just that there might not be much else going on in that property. So as much as depreciation is my specialty and I love it, I would never suggest people buy a property because of the deductions. And I've, uh, instead of that long-winded story, I've come up with saying that depreciation is a bonus, never a strategy. So I I was trying to think of a metaphor while you were talking earlier and and I haven't come up with the best one but the the one that I've just come up with that'll work for today good is it's a little bit like you're on a diet right and you want to go and you eat healthy and while you're walking in the supermarket you see these low fat signs for low fat property pro- products low fat property <laughs> low fat products so you're looking at yogurt for instance now yeah. if you've ever actually you know, picked up those yogurt tubs and looked at the kilojoules for low-fat and regular-fat yogurt, sometimes with the same brand, the low-fat can actually be more kilojoules than the full-fat. And the reason is that they've had to put more sugar in it and starches and other things to actually make up for the fact that fat has flavor, fat has (laughs) consistency. So, you know, and it's it's basically looking for the wrong thing. It's it's really looking at the wrong number. And and not understanding the big picture. And I think that that's the basic thing. And so you can accidentally buy yourself something that's actually going to make you put on weight instead <laughs> because you're buying the diet product and it's actually doesn't actually do what it says on the tin. And it's a little bit the same with, with you know, chasing depreciation. It's like you're chasing tax advantages and you're chasing paying less tax, but what it's not doing is actually helping you in your future for wealth creation, like what you just said, right? So yeah. that's my metaphor. It's low fat yogurt, not always, not always going to help you lose weight. There you go. That's good. So, I like that. That actually made me think of another one that's slightly more absurd. Which uh, obviously, slightly that's, more absurd than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but um, I'm known on, for absurdity, I think. Give it. Well, I, I often kind of thought, I, I know that I can win the biggest loser. And people are like, what do you mean? Like, you know, there's people on there that are like two or 300 kilos and like, you know, there's no way you could lose that much. Uh, and I think, well, yeah, you're probably right. In the 300 kilo stakes, no good. But I kind of thought, what if you went in there at, say, a normal weight and you just cut off your leg, right? You get on the scales, you're missing a leg. You get it done, right? You could actually, you know, if there weren't you're people right. too big. Percentage basis. You could you're win. Right. You're I'm following. You could win. Yeah. Yeah. And you literally cut your leg off despite your face. Yeah, the unfortunate thing is as you as you hop your way out of the studio with your million dollars yeah, or I don't know what you get paid, you kind of live the rest of your life with no leg. Now in the in the short term it's like, yeah, okay, well that's that's a great idea, but then you are literally sort of legless, legless. not in a good way forever. So your yeah, your metaphor as you know, you might have thought, yeah, it is a bit absurd, but now you've heard a bit more mine. palatable. Yeah. But my, <laughs> my my metaphor is Quite normal by comparison. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> right, let's get back on topic. Yeah, here. back now, on this topic. This word keeps coming up: depreciation, depreciation, depreciation. Let's yeah. let's get a break it down. Mortlock definition of what depreciation is, how it's used, and some of yeah. the pros and cons. Yeah. Look, um, what it is is it's essentially a way to reduce your taxable income. Now, for the purpose of making it fairly simple, let's say, uh, Megan, you purchase a property and you are earning $100,000 a year. If we do a depreciation schedule for your property, and it has to be an investment property, and we find $11,000 worth of deductions, say, now in the eyes of the tax office, instead of earning $100,000 a year, you're earning $89,000 a year. And the difference is roughly $23,000 of tax payable on 100 grand compared to $20,000 on 89,000. So that that is probably the simplest way that I've found to explain it. It will reduce your taxable income and why and how? Well, as an investor, you are providing housing that has a value. It is an investment like any investment that has expenses, right? If you have a business, you have uh, something that you invoice for, something that you sell, and then you've got the cost of doing business, which could be wages, it could be the premises. So the building, the, the investment game is pretty much the same. The revenue or the invoicing is is the rent, and then the expenses will be things like the property management fees, the interest component of your loan, and tax depreciation is an on-paper loss, and it's based on the decline in value of the structure and the fixtures and fittings where they qualify. So the tax office will say, for example, that bricks have a 40-year effective life. That enables us to work out a depreciation percentage. So it all comes off the construction cost, and there's all sorts of boring, nerdy formula that enables me to do what I do, and essentially um, people pay me to make those problems go away so they don't have to learn about it. <laughs> and you make a good point there, and then that is there's there's um, certain elements of the building, the structure, the fixtures, the fittings that have a shelf life, if you like, um, yep. that has been determined by the Australian Taxation Office. So you just work within those guidelines as determined by um, by legislation. Yeah. Now, we have seen changes to legislation in recent time and it's it's actually sort of brought up some or created some myths in, um, in the property investment circles, property forums online and so forth. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to those myths shortly. But I want to, I want to just sort of talk, to you about you've talked about how it reduces your taxable income in a tax year yeah. but it also it does something to 
the capital gains tax calculation at the other end. And I think this is one of the big mistakes that we know that investors make is they don't understand that you might deduct it along the way or decrease your taxable income. But something happens when you sell it too, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, that that's true. And it, I suppose it's it's traditionally been tricky ground for us because it's almost like we're kind of hiding that there are cons. We talked about pros and cons, no. but we're not technically really qualified to speak about it. We have to be registered tax agents, but we're very limited in in the sort of tax advice that we can give. But it, it's fairly easy to 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 explain in the sense of let's say you have a property that you buy for a million dollars and two years later you sell it for $2 million, right? You have a million dollar capital gain and because it's not your principal place of residence, you will have to pay capital gains tax on that. Now, with depreciation, there's there's two main components. There's the building structure and then there's the fixtures and fittings. And those are things like ovens and cooktops and carpets and those sorts of things. Normally, there's not going to be anything to speak about from a fixtures and fitting point of view, but the structural component, whatever you claim for that two years, will reduce your initial cost base. So the original cost base was a million dollars. That's what you bought it for. You sold it for two million, so a million dollar capital gain. So if we claim, let's say, $20,000 worth of deductions over those two years on the structural component, the cost base drops from a million dollars to $980,000. So your capital gain will be on the gap between nine eighty and $2 million now. Now, it's something, it's a question that often kind of gets heckled at me at the end of presentations because it'll be all like, oh, well, it's all very well, this depreciation stuff, but you've got to pay it back eventually. So it's kind of like a non-event. I think it's important to understand that it's it's not sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. There's quite a few nuances to it. The the reason why I picked a two year time frame as as distinct from say a six month time frame is that if you own the property for a year or more, you hold it for a year or more, you get a fifty percent CGT exemption. So now we're not worried about paying tax on the um, million dollars and and twenty a million and twenty. We're actually looking at half of that. Um, then it's based on your taxable income. So you take that uh, that 50% of the gain and then you apply your taxable income. So you might only be paying for 45% of half. So it's kind of half and then almost half again. The other thing I think is important to note is that people need to consider the time value of money and also the period at which it's most difficult to hold a property. So the time value of money is easy because, I mean, we're living in inflationary environment. We sort of realized yesterday I could afford wheat picks. Now I can't. Um, today, a dollar is worth more than it will be in 20 years. That's that's just what happens, right? That's how the world works. The, the other component to consider is that when you buy an investment property, the hardest time to own it from a cash flow point of view is going to be at the beginning because over time, your rents will hopefully go up. Certainly, we're living in a, a, an inflationary rental environment. And then you may also pay down some principal. Uh, so over time, your repayments may drop. Um, they drop in real terms from inflation anyway, but we'll leave that to the side. But your rent will go up. So the the really the, the most difficult time to hold a property is at the beginning. So that's why we're kind of saying, Claim the deductions now because those dollars mean something to you rather than worrying about what their value is down the track when you're not having to pay it back. You're paying back 
half and then your marginal rate of half. That hopefully makes sense. I think um, the other thing to to be considering is that, um, so this, like you said, the costs are typically higher when you first buy an investment property. And, and obviously for a first home buyer who's chosen to rent versus vest, mm. um, you know, they've got to be thinking about that because they also got to live somewhere else. You know, you've yeah. got to either paying rent somewhere else or maybe you're still with mum and dad thinking, when am I going to get free? Um, <laughs> let's go back also to uh, to that plant and equipment versus fixtures and fittings yeah. because this is quite important. And and this is where your the answer to the first question and explaining what is the best property to for depreciation purposes, like which, yep. which, which property am I going to get the most amount of tax deductions from versus which is the best type of property for me to buy? Two yeah. very different questions, um, but the second question is a better question to ask. But the reason that there's a lot of you know hype around buying brand new property for first home buyers and for rent and for investors is because if you're going to rent vest, if you're going to be an investor and you are claiming um, your depreciation, you get more depreciation if you can include all of those fixes and fittings such as a stove, such as the air conditioning, such as the carpet, such as the curtains, all that sort of stuff. And the yeah. problem is, of course, you can only claim them when they're brand new, right? Yeah. So if, even if you buy a one-year-old property, you, can, you can't claim them anymore, yeah. which is something that changed back in, was it 2017? Oh, you've been listening. May, two th- I've been listening. I'm an May, yeah, good. What, May. Give me a date as well. <laughs> oh, it was, it was a budget. On. I can't remember the date. It was the budget. The- <laughs> oh, all right. Well, 17. as a bonus question, who was the treasurer? Oh, um, Morrison. Yeah, I was no, going to say, head, head of bushfire response. Yeah, Morrison. Yes. Oh, he's still, yeah, anyway, that's another story. Yes, it was <laughs> Morrison. Not that. <laughs> Before he became our prime minister. The, mo- the more I speak, <laughs> the more Megan seems to be nervous of the direction like, oh, this show is going. Where are we going with this? What we don't get political. No. <laughs> you're you're no, right. And don't, and don't set Veronica off because on, if we go down that pathway, We'll just have to cut we'll have it out. to edit. Yeah, mm, we don't want to okay. edit. We want to go straight to straight to um, publish. Anyway, the yes. 9th of May. You're absolutely right. So from from that time on, and it was literally from seven thirty on the 9th of May because that's yeah. the exact time the budget speech started. It's quite peculiar the way they do that. If you exchanged on a property from that day onwards, it either needs to be a brand new property, or you could buy an established property and put brand new assets in. So you could put brand new carpet in and then just have the carpet to claim. So yeah, either buy brand new or put brand new assets in. One one thing that a lot of people don't realize as well is that um, people will kind of say, all right, well, if I buy a brand new property, um, it doesn't matter. Like those 9th of May rules don't actually apply to me, but that's not technically correct. If you buy a brand new property, and then uh, let's say you rent it out for a year and then you live in it, from the moment that you occupy that property, you will actually forever kill off those plant and equipment deductions. Uh, Whereas with the old system, you used to be able to come in and out and it wouldn't have any impact. You just wouldn't claim the deductions for that period of time where you lived in it. That could be a trap. You could imagine that there could be some first-home buyers wanting to get the first-home buyer grant yeah. So living in it for six months or whatever, but then actually foregoing the yes. depreciation because of they've, they've done that. So you take with one hand and you give with the other. Um, but we're not recommending you go and buy a brand new anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But um, no. well, it's one of the myths, and and I think that's you know point point three that we do want to cover off. One of mm. the myths is 
that to get any level of um, depreciation that you can claim and get any tax benefits, it has to be brand new. But Mike, that's not actually the case. It's 100% wrong. In fact, I've even heard some of my quantity surveying brethren say that new property is always better for depreciation. And I can give an instant example where it's not the case. Um, So let's say a brand new project home, maybe it's built for $400,000 you know, the deductions could be fifteen dollars or $20,000 in the first year. But let's say a property that was bought, uh, that was built in the 1920s in, let's say, trying to think of a blue chip suburb, maybe like- Bondi. Uh, Bondi. Very blue chip. <laughs> yeah. So it could be a rather large property built in the 1920s. Maybe it was purchased for $5 million because a year ago it's had a $3 million renovation on it. (laughs) Now, let's say maybe only two mil of that is structural components. You're getting two and a half percent worth of of that value each financial year. So what we're talking $50,000 a year worth of deductions as distinct from 15 or 20. So to say that new is always better is incorrect. Now that example is a bit unusual. You're not sort of tossing up. Do I get a project home? home Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Do I get a $5 million place? Not where most of our audience are. That's okay. It's a good example. Of course. I caution people against any sort of blanket statements like new is better or old is no deductions. And, And that's kind of just my way of illustrating it. Of course, new property typically will be better for depreciation deductions, but What people don't realise is that the cutoff date for depreciation claims on the original building structure is 1987. Now, we we find about, last time I crunched it, it was 69.9% of all properties that we do are built after 1987. And the ones that are built prior to 1987... Uh, it, it's it's more than two thirds of them have had renovations, mm. and that's an important consideration because, let's say the property was built in the fifties, and it's a more modest, typical first home buyer style property. If it's had a kitchen or bathroom renovation, or any sort of extension, or a new carport, or driveway, or retaining walls. As qualified quantity surveyors and, and construction estimators, we're qualified to estimate the value of those works, even if they're done by the previous owner. So people might say, well, I don't have any of those costs. Well, that's where we come in. We're recognized by the tax office as being able to estimate them. Yeah, so, yeah. so new new typically will be better, but to say that there's no depreciation is 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 a bit of a, a bit of a furphy. I've always been able to claim depreciation and, and I've don't buy new properties, so absolutely mm. correct. Yep. Um, and one of the things you do is obviously get a depreciation schedule uh, put together for you uh, by a quantity surveyor such as Mike and Mike's business um, because then, then when you do lodge your tax return, you need to include that. Another thing that probably we could talk about is one of the things that um, you mentioned earlier about government infrastructure and uh, a road that might have been, you know, announced it costing $2 billion and ends up, you know, really costing 10 because somehow they don't seem to use quantity surveyors. Yeah. But when you're trying to insure your property, now if you're going to buy an apartment or, or a townhouse or a villa, you don't have to worry about insuring it because the strata um, management or the owner's corporation insures the, the whole building. But if you buy a house as an investment, uh, you need to make sure that you're insuring it for the right amount of money. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that you're not underinsured, and that is something that I think is quite interesting as well in terms of what quantity surveyors can do and work out really what the replacement cost 
of that building is. You know, recently I have got an investment property that's a house and the insurance, in fact, I need to get you guys through, Mike, because the insurance um, company, I rang them and said, look, I think it's underinsured. And they gave me this tiny figure to build. Basically, they gave me $460,000 or something to build um, a two-bedroom brick semi-detached uh you know, 1920s or rebuild a, a 1920s bungalow in inner Sydney. Mm. And, yeah. and I went, 400 spot? And they said, yes, that's our schedule. And I'm like, that's too, it's just, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, so I was worried about being underinsured. I went to the insurance company and they told me that, which was a lot less than what I already had it insured for. Yeah. So do you want to explain, I guess, how people work out what they should be. And, and in fact, this goes for whether you're you're buying for an investment or not, actually. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It does. I think it's important both ways. And and when it comes to the strata, you're, you're correct, is that the insurance will be taken out by the strata. But I think it's also incumbent on owners to investigate whether the value is appropriate as well. True. Just because That's there's true. a strata company in the mix doesn't mean that they've had an independent expert and there's a there's an ongoing kind of debate that we're having with valuers that are that are putting replacement cost values as an addendum to their market valuations, uh, and they're not uh. qualified to estimate construction values. And you know, many of them will say, uh, "We use Cordell's construction calculator, and it's industry standard, and insurance companies use that." But it also itself has a disclaimer saying you need to use a quantity surveyor to be able to rely on this, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like we're, we're arguing round, round and round in circles to, well, to an obvious bit, point. It sounds a little bit like using an AVM or an automated valuation model rather than actually getting a valuation. Mm. So the two, two different things. Okay, yeah. so yes, the, do, the, the, do explain. The big, the big problem is that we saw last year in, in 2022, or like, this is sort of an awkward timing thing. It, anyway, we'll just say 2022, you know, construction costs went up 11.9%, uh, which was really the highest on record, uh, ostensibly. There was an issue with the GST in, in around 2000, but that, that's the highest on record. And we saw 16 straight quarters of construction cost growth. Now, if you think back to pre-COVID, where the construction costs really started to soar, the Insurance Council of Australia said that 83% of properties are underinsured. So 83% before construction costs went through the roof, you know, we're talking, you know, 20% in, in 18 months or, or thereabouts. So it's a, it's a huge problem in Australia and people don't necessarily realize what a replacement cost is. I can remember as a student being guilty and I'm happy to share it. Uh, when I was sitting at home in the first property that I ever bought, I saw an ad for one of those glossy home builders, right? And, you know, it was sort of like, build this place and it's, you know, $250,000. I'm like, wow, that's way nicer than my place. I guess I'll just insure mine for two fifty, and I'll get that. Like most naive thing uh, ever to think. Because the reality is, is that the cost to rebuild your property is not the cost of a builder going and building on a brand new site. There will be demolition works. It may be too close to the boundary. It might not be allowable to build in the same uh, type. Mm. The materials might not be feasible to, to build in. There's also cost escalations with the tendering period. There's all sorts of nuances in and around the construction costs that people don't realize. It's not just go and get something built. There's a lot more to that. So it's it's a 
I, I feel for the consumer because what we've got is insurance companies with their online calculators. Um, the people that are using commercial insurance brokers to help with their insurance are, are tending to use people like quantity surveyors to make sure that they've got an, an adequate insurance policy in, in type and level of cover. But for the consumer, it's a real minefield. Um, but it's certainly something that we can do to help homeowners, whether they're investors or owner occupiers. Then to briefly touch on, but we won't go into into it too much here. But the other thing that you 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 know, there's a number of things that you get involved in as a um, quantity surveyor. Uh, people who are buying um, strata or you know a townhouse unit, anything with a body corporate or, or strata. Yeah. Um, we always suggest that when they're doing their uh, record inspections that they look at the capital works forecast yeah. um, and compare that to where the sinking fund or capital works fund is sitting. Um, that's something that you your profession pre- prepares yeah. um, for a body corporate or a, a strata um, management company or strata. Yep. Uh, but it's not something that an individual would engage you for. Can you just um, very briefly talk about what that capital works forecast is and why it's important for a buyer of an individual lot to be at least somewhat aware of what it is? Yeah, look, and and I think if you're using a solicitor or a conveyancer, they can be doing the strata reports where they're investigating that and, and much, much more. But essentially what happens is that the buildings, they wear out. You know, it's not like people are necessarily hard on them. Just over time, things need to be maintained. Things need to be replaced. So there there has to be an adequate budget to be able to cover those improvements. And and, and typically people have called it a, a sinking fund. But, you know, the new um, terminology, as you say, is capital works fund. So what we do is we look at all of the building components. We assign essentially some uh, life cycle costing to the individual widgets within a building. And then that will kind of forecast, all right, in this particular year, we're looking like we need a roof, roof replacement or a gutter replacement. All these railings yeah. need to be redone or we've got to repaint. So these are all things that are kind of forecast. And then you can back calculate, well, what is the appropriate strata fees that will ensure that we have coverage for these additional works? Because the reality is, is if you don't do that, eventually you will end up with special levies, which can yeah. be, uh, well, I mean, you could you could find yourself in a position where you just don't actually have the cash to meet that special levy. And mm-hmm. it can also make the uh, the property less desirable for investors or or new owners that are looking to purchase in that block when they know well no one has really been prudent with this particular fund and there will be future costs that are going to have to come out of my pocket and that can affect your value absolutely and you know we teach you what to look for in a strata report um, in your first home buyer guide but it's funny the other day I was, because uh, I run a, a mentoring program for new buyers agents as well, and we were talking about strata reports, and I was talking about the Capital Works Fund forecast, the Skiing Fund forecast, and and there's a difference between the ones that that uh, strata managers can buy off a shelf versus ones that they've actually had a quantity survey go to the actual complex or building and look at the actual yeah. roof and look at the actual lift and look at the actual walls and so on, as opposed to... Um, using one of those uh, those calculators and sort of plugged in that, oh, the roof's 40 years and the building's this and that. Um, how do you tell, because this is a question that was asked to me and I don't know the answer, how can you tell whether the Capital Works Fund forecast has been 
put together by a quantity surveyor who's actually inspected that exact building, or it's it's done via one of these um these calculators. Yeah, well, Is I mean, there a way? yeah, I mean, we we could tell. I'm just trying to think about ways that are easy for the consumer. Like normally, the the level of breakdown is is the biggest giveaway. Um, when you see the policies, the insurance policies and things like that, you will normally see, well, where has the valuation come from? Mm-hmm. Um, is is the replacement value something that a value has done or a quantity surveyor? And I don't mean to, to knock valuers too hard. I've got lots of friends that are valuers and they're very, very good at providing market values, so much so that our institute says that we're not qualified to do it. Um, I would argue by the same case, they are not knots and bolts construction cost experts. So the easiest way for me is to see, is this a sinking fund that was done by a valuer or a quantity surveyor? And it really should also have the date of the inspection on that report as well. Unfortunately, the industry has has really had a little bit of a race to the bottom from a cost point of view, and yeah. there have been a lot of valuers active in that space to the point where it's a service that we essentially have parked. We don't necessarily uh, advertise it that much because to do yeah. it properly, we're going to be more expensive than they'll be able to get it. We're working on some innovation to try and meet the markets to some degree uh, because there are people that have an appetite for, I actually want this to be correct. I want this to be right. We've got some great strata managers out there, but you know, it's difficult when you've Mm. just got these tick and flick style reports and the net result is you're ending up being exposed. Like sometimes it's worthwhile paying a little bit of money for peace of mind. It's no different to things like education. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Mike, that has been awesome. You, you've talked to us about some of the worst mistakes that you hear investors make when it comes to investing um, in relation to, to tax benefits. And you've also shared some of those examples of things to avoid, but also dispelled some common myths that are out there. So thank you for that. We always have one last question of our guests, and, and that is, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were buying your first home? I I did see, you know, you would expect that I'd have a better answer because I did see this in advance, right? And I just kind of thought, gee, I, I don't really know. But the best I could really come up with is that when when I first bought my home, I was I was so terrified about every economic development. I was so terrified about whether it's going up or down. And 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 as human beings, we tend to look at things as being hyper important in the moment. But then when you zoom out to a macro view, that huge crash or that huge boom is this tiny little dot in time. So I, I wish that I understood the, the the value of time and patience as a property owner. Um, and, and I think that would have uh, reduced a few of those grey hairs that I have to keep at bay with a, a number one buzz cut. That's great. <laughs> it's well, the old, not, it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the in market. the market. Yes, yep. that's one of those old adages that is true. Yeah. As opposed to so many others that are not true. Just a quick note for our listeners, this course that we offer, which is called Your First Home Buyer Guide, it only costs $990 and you get direct access to Megan and myself to help guide you through your negotiations even. Trust me, you'll overpay a hell of a lot more than a thousand bucks if you don't know what you're doing. So we just encourage you to jump on the website homebuyacademy.com.au and have a look at the course and see whether or not it's something you want to do. We encourage you to do so. 
In this episode, we've only touched on a tiny part of the huge amount of things you need to know to become an educated first home buyer. There is so much more for you to do. You can learn all of the steps in the right order and avoid all of the mistakes that others have made in our 10-step online course for first home buyers. If you'd like to learn more about the right process and avoid making rookie errors, become an educated home buyer. Head over to the website, check out your first home buyer guide, the course that we have created for you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. It helps other people find us. And of course, I know it's a bit cringy, but we're going to ask for five stars. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with more priceless stuff.